Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Hello, listeners. You still working? I am still working. Here, let's try that again. Hello, listeners. Hello, listeners. Ooh, almost. Hey, Nerdcasters. I'm Scott Bland. I'm here with my two-year-old son. Sammy. Sammy. He's helping me out with the podcast. Kind of. No, we don't push that button. Mm, No. Anyway, (laughs) this week on the show, we are going to talk about the way that Donald Trump is inching his daily coronavirus task force briefings closer to primetime viewing and why that makes sense for this animal of TV. But first, we're going to get into the story behind the passing of the emergency coronavirus relief bill in the Senate. It's been quite the adventure covering this. Marianne Levine is a Senate reporter for Politico who's been on the Hill for the past 10 days tracking this emergency coronavirus package that the Senate just passed. But the Hill the past 10 days has not really been the same as usual. The environment was unlike anything we've ever seen. The Capitol was essentially deserted. Marianne told me about the remaining Congress reporters up on the Hill that banded together to create what they called the pandemic pool. And they started what became known as the pandemic pool. So that the reporters could observe social distancing with the senators and staffers and not crowd around everyone the way they they usually do when everyone's fighting to get a quote in these big scrums. We all started pulling together our quotes and our interviews and would just send each other what we all got from each other, got from lawmakers or got from administration officials as we were reporting out the negotiations. And I think that that was a really, it was a really nice part. I think it brought out the best of the Hill press corps because it kind of felt like everyone had each other's backs and everyone was willing to send an interview along if you weren't there at that point. And so I think there was this sense of understanding too that, you know, we were up there and a lot of us were felt that we were putting our health at risk just given the recommendations against going against really being outside and interacting with people with this virus. And so I think there was a lot of empathy among the Hill reporters. This, like so much else right now, is not normal. Yeah, I mean, the Hill is known for being a really competitive beat. You know, I think we're often competing against each other, getting the right quote from a senator or getting, you know, getting a senator by themselves so that they can tell you something about what happened. I think coronavirus changed a lot of that. Marianne is here to tell us about that 96 to 0 vote. I think there was, first of all, a very big sigh of relief um, when this finally happened. There, we over the last five or six days, really the last week, um, it's been a lot of negotiations, a lot of back and forth between Republicans, Democrats, and the Trump administration. And I, and I think that seeing that ninety-six to zero vote last night was. I think there was everyone could just take a deep breath. And uh, I think that a lot of people were relieved that the Senate finally actually acted and did something to address the coronavirus after days of talks. Yeah, you know, like the 96-0, it kind of, it, it it looks like something, you know, you just put a, put a bow on, right? But in, in fact, a lot of people are pretty unhappy right now, right? It, the, you know, can you, can you walk us through, 
you know who maybe didn't didn't really get what they wanted what like, what the the points of conflict are here and obviously you you hinted at there was a lot of, there were huge blow-ups just to, to get to this point uh, and I, I think you know probably a, a number of those 96 were holding their noses yeah I mean with a compromise bill you're never gonna have there's always gonna be something in there that most senators don't like. Uh, I think that when we're looking at this $2 trillion package, it really is a true compromise between the Democrats and Republicans. Right. But I do want to go back to the point that 96 to 0 is a really big deal for the Senate. I mean, especially after all the all the acrimony that we saw over the last couple of days. I mean, on, mon- on Monday, the Senate floor was just lit up with Republican senators who are normally quite calm, you know, yelling at the Democrats and really angry um, because Democrats were blocking the Senate from moving forward because they wanted to leverage negotiations with the Trump administration on the package. And so it got pretty ugly on the Senate floor with Republicans and Democrats both accusing the other of trying to play politics with this moment and trying to uh, trying to leverage the coronavirus crisis um, to their advantage to push forward policy items that had nothing to do with the actual pandemic. So we saw a lot of bitterness. We saw a lot of stops and starts with the negotiations, a lot of late nights on the Hill. But I think a 96 to zero vote is a pretty big deal. And I think that makes this much easier for this to pass the House. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's probably true. And, I, you know, the, the end result of all that acrimony starting on Monday or Tuesday was that I, I think, like you said, the, the bill did end up being a little bigger. The, the unemployment benefits uh, ex- extended for longer, more generous. Um, the thing the thing that keeps sticking out to me, I mean, the, the 96 uh, to O and and the what you pointed out before about McConnell and Schumer kind of both claiming credit is that. Uh, each of the past two presidential campaigns, and maybe stretching a little further than that, has been kind of animated by this idea, I think, that's very attractive to uh, large groups of voters in both parties, that if the parties in Washington are both agreeing on something, that uh, people are probably getting screwed by it in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm curious to see how uh, how how this ends up kind of playing out over the long run. I think obviously the fact that they're trying to get money out the door to people who are getting hurt by the the economy kind of closing down over over coronavirus temporarily is a good thing. And so we'll just kind of see what 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 happens with the rest of the stuff that was in the bill basically. Yeah, I mean, it's a 7 800 plus page bill and they put this together in five days which is like warp speed for the senate it's a deliberative body that doesn't do a ton of legislating and so the fact that they put together the biggest economic rescue package in the history of the country in five essentially five ten days um i i can expect that there's gonna be some issues with this um it seems like we're probably gonna see i mean the language is written really fast i think that there's gonna be i think we're gonna see a lot of um, consequences of it that we might not anticipate or that we're not thinking about right now. And, uh, but it, it is, I think, going to have, I think they're hoping that this will have a big impact on yeah. um, what's going on Definitely. and uh, hopefully mitigate the, mitigate the issues and yeah. the crisis that we're seeing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you mentioned Schumer, you mentioned McConnell. Um, who were the other main players in putting this together, obviously, besides the two Senate party leaders? Um, so Treasury Secretary Mnuchin played a pretty big role, as did White House Legislative Affairs Director Eric Uland. Um, a lot of the late nights in the Capitol, we would see Mnuchin and Uland shuttling back and forth 
between um, between McConnell's offices and Schumer's offices. Um, but Mnuchin, I think, is a pretty interesting character here. He um, is obviously he's a Treasury Secretary. He's kind of developed this reputation among Democrats of someone they can deal with. He got the second coronavirus stimulus package. He got a deal on that with Nancy Pelosi. On this third stimulus package, he w- he worked. He worked. He talked a lot to Schumer, and Schumer likes to now call them Chuck and Stephen. Um, that's kind of Schumer's way of saying, "Hey, we're we're tight now." <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, they um, they. I think Mnuchin played a really interesting role. I, I mean, what's so crazy about all of this is Pelosi and Trump have not spoken in months, and there's not really because Trump is obviously upset about impeachment, and I think there's just a lot of there's no love lost between the two of them, and so Mnuchin is is kind of viewed as the point guy for Democrats to deal with the administration. And what's interesting is I think that in any other situation or maybe any other political situation we'd be in, the Speaker of the House would be talking to the president about this. But they, but Mnuchin has kind of become this conduit. Because that, because that relationship has basically gone to zero. Yeah, exactly. So it, it kind of falls on Mnuchin essentially to to be the conduit when some of these when we want when the Democrats and the Republicans want some compromise um, that's going to get through. Um, Eric Uland also is um, he's a well known Capitol Hill staffer, um, a former Capitol Hill staffer, and well known among the Republicans um, on the Hill. And so he, I think, sort of played. He also played a big role in negotiations as well. Got it. So. You know, I want to kind of talk a little bit now before we go about just the backdrop of all these things about the Capitol Hill amid coronavirus. And I I guess the thing I'm wondering is like, what was it like being up there? Even a week or two weeks ago, we asked senators, hey, what are you doing to try to not get this coronavirus? And a lot of them were, you know, they're just like, yeah, we're just washing our hands. It's fine. You know, I think there's a sense. I think a lot of these guys have kind of a sense of invincibility. Are you saying that there are egos among among United States senators? <laughs> um, you know, you can read between the lines, this Scott. Is exclu- this is an exclusive <laughs> news break here on the I Nerdcast. know. It's a hot take. This is a hot take from Politico's um, Senate team right here, uh, that they do, in fact, have big egos. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I do think that Senator Paul getting it and then a slew of senators having to self-quarantine at different points. And even, I mean, Senator Amy Klobuchar, her husband is was hospitalized for having with coronavirus. And so I think this week we also really saw um, the pandemic. Um, people really saw how it affected their livelihoods. And I think that's, you know, that's always really hard. And I think that truly changes the dynamic. And of course, uh, another one of the, the side effects of the situation, Marianne, is that the, the Senate now, after having passed this bill, is getting out of town for a while to try and disperse everyone. That's right. The Senate will be out until April 20th. And um, that's a long time for them for them to be gone, especially because it's not August. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think part of it is I, I think the Senate's trying to do its part and trying to flatten the curve. And when it comes to the virus and it's where they're not going to be in the Capitol, we'll still have pro forma sessions. So those are sessions where one senator has to gavel in for a minute and then gavel out. But we're really not going to see the Senate come together until basically mid-April. Yeah. I, you know, I, w- I wonder if they'll be able to keep to that given how quickly things with coronavirus are, are evolving and changing and, and whether, you know, they, they might be called upon to do something else besides what they just did. But we will see. We'll have to look at what the effect of the third stimulus package is. I think there's a lot of talk right now about what does the Senate do after this? And there's a lot of expectation that 
they're going to have to do something else. So I think a lot of this depends on the crisis, the CDC recommendations, and how leadership wants to move forward. Uh, one thought, one thing that's gotten some traction or some discussion is this idea of remote voting, where maybe senators wouldn't have to come back at all. Um, but that, I, but that's something that McConnell does not support. So we're not. I'm not holding my breath if that we're going to see remote voting. But it's some. It's an idea that has been up in the air and that has gained a little bit more traction in the last couple of days, given the emergency situation that we're in. Absolutely. Well, uh, Marianne, thank you for walking us through all that. Uh, thank you for your late nights on, on the Hill tracking this bill that came together and a preemptive thank you for, like we said, following through on over the next weeks and months over what was in this this huge thing that, uh, that passed so quickly. Um, and it's something we're going to be keeping an eye on very closely coming up. Marianne, thank you again. Yeah, thank you for having me. And we've got more Nerdcast coming up for you in a second, but we'll be back after a quick message. The problem with the news right now? It's everywhere. And each day, it can feel like we're all just mindlessly scrolling. That's where Slate's What Next comes in. This short daily podcast is here to help you make sense of things. From fleshing out new angles to uncovering stories that have been largely unreported, Host Mary Harris guides listeners through complex topics with ease, asking the right questions and drawing out new information from her guests in the process. When the news feels overwhelming, we're here to help you answer. What next? Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's go from one end of Pennsylvania Avenue to the other now. So what Congress just did, this is what uh, Americans are really going to feel in terms of the government response to the pandemic. What we're going to talk about now is the public face of the coronavirus response. At the White House, President Trump and his coronavirus task force have been holding these daily press briefings lately, uh, some of them stretching toward the two-hour mark. And these briefings are serving as almost a Trump-hosted TV show. And they've started to move later and later into the day from roughly the noon hour, which is where they typically resided at the beginning to closer to prime time, which is no accident for a uh, television uh, fixated president. And that's the subject of a new piece by Michael Cruz, senior staff writer for Politico and Politico magazine, who incidentally has written a lot before about the anatomy of Trump's political rallies and also his career on TV. Yeah. So any good show uh, or most good shows have a um, have a formula, have a an arc uh, to which the you know loyal viewers can grow accustomed. Lots of things happen within that arc, but uh, it's pretty formulaic, right? I mean that you can make that argument for almost any piece of narrative content, TV or otherwise. Michael, in your piece, you describe the anatomy of these briefings, the way you see President Trump structuring them. And even though they can be really chaotic, because just about everything involving Trump is, you see real motive here in how the president has set these up. The narrative arc here is this. Uh, It starts with Donald Trump. Uh, More often than not, it ends with Donald Trump. Uh, At the beginning, he will kick off the briefing by thanking people for coming. Usually it is 
you know, a dozen, a dozen plus reporters, not a very big crowd, but uh, the crowd outside the room, of course, millions and millions of television viewers. He starts by welcoming people and thanking them for being there. Uh, he engages in, well, I don't know, four, five, six, eight minutes of monologue, uh, things he wants to mention, uh, accomplishments or would-be accomplishments or progress made, uh, bits of information um, that he wants to convey, uh, at which point he shifts to uh, kind of act two of these briefings, which is um, perhaps the most important part of the briefings, but also in some sense, the least entertaining part of these briefings. He introduces members of the supporting cast to this rotating uh, roster of characters, uh, public health professionals, doctors uh, who are on the coronavirus task force, um, admirals, uh, cabinet members, the vice president is is obviously an almost daily, pretty much daily uh, member of the supporting cast. But he introduces them, and that is a word he actually has used. Um, he is almost a conductor. He is the MC. Uh, you know, he is the, the, the ringleader of this uh, of this format, but this is the part of this of this arc, the part of this formula where uh, the uh, supporting cast gets to have its say. And then at the end of that, which usually takes, I mean, depends on the day, but usually it takes, um, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Uh, at the end of that, uh, it is back to Trump. And in some sense, this is the most um, fluid and the most exciting, if that's the right word, uh, chapter uh, of, of this, of this uh, formula. It is when uh, the president, primarily, not only the president, but primarily the president engages with questions from the reporters. And that is where we've seen sort of uh, the most fireworks, so to speak, um, in, in these briefings. So how do you square, Michael, and again, you know, having having watched so many of these, having watched so much of Trump, of what Trump has done before, how do you square the the kind of wrote, like thought out, clearly, you know, almost formulaic at this point, set up of these things with the fact that uh, internally and day to day, these briefings are kind of a mess. You've got Trump... Uh, contradicting himself from from day to day, sometimes contradicting the you know public health officials that are there. How how do you how do you square those those things? The first lesson of Trump one hundred and one is that Trump is Trump, and Trump will always be Trump. The back and forth, the day to day, literal self contradictions, the ability to say one day we're going to be so good, this is going to pass, relax, and then the next day say. It's bad. It's bad. We might be doing this till July or August to days after that saying, no, no, we're going to do this really soon. Let's try to have this all wrapped up more or less by Easter. Seems on its face like just absolute craziness, but it is very much in keeping with his behavioral patterns, both as president and in his pre-presidential existence. Yeah. How is the, how is the media handling covering this new format? Uh, I mean, you know, I've seen, uh, you know, a couple of the cable networks are starting to kind of drop, drop the, the ends of, of these press conferences, which is, as you mentioned, is kind of where, where things can get a little, a little crazy. 
uh, before. I saw a report earlier today. There's a there's a, a radio station in Seattle that said it's going to stop covering the the president live uh, to avoid broadcasting misinformation to to viewers, uh, which is pretty striking. Uh, of course, Seattle being also one of the epicenters of the coronavirus outbreak in the United States. It's the latest version of a question. I think the press, all of us, have been grappling with from the start, not just from the start of his presidency, but from the start of his campaign. How much airtime do you give? How much leeway do you give him? When do you cut away? Um, Do you just sort of run tape live? It's a slightly different conversation now, given the context of this pandemic, right? Right. There is real public value. There's public interest at hand to having the president be able to, even in his sometimes odd ways, even sometimes harmful ways, transmit information that might be quite important. And in between what he's doing, we're also hearing from Tony Fauci and Deborah Burks and others who are also trying to convey important, potentially life or death information. So how do you make a blanket decision? How do you know when to drop out? Um, do you just not run it live and then edit edit it down to only the most uh, important and uh, responsible comments from the president? I don't know how you do that. I don't know that there is a an easy answer to this complicated question. And in some sense, the question, which has been complicated from the get-go, has gotten nothing but more complicated uh, with this pandemic. Are there a couple moments that have really stuck out to you as you've been watching these that just kind of made you, and again, from the perspective of having watched this this president for so long, watched his public appearances so so carefully, that, that made you sit back and say, you know, whoa, or, or, or any, any, anything particularly surprising about his, him in this, in this new format, this new context? I mean, I guess, I guess I'll, I'll start with a, what was really a sort of a snippet of a moment. The, the snide comment he made about Mitt Romney self-quarantining was a quick dose of kind of pure Trump, unable to stop himself from responding the way he always would respond to a perceived enemy, to somebody who's been one of his more vocal opponents, if you want to use that terminology, over in the Senate. Within the Republican Party, yeah. Within the Republican Party, right. And so he he heard the news or seemed to suggest that he had just heard the news that Mitt Romney was going to self-quarantine and said something along, along the lines of, gee, that's too bad. Clearly sarcastic. The follow-up question was, sir, did I detect some sarcasm there? He said, oh, no, 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 no. It was obviously there. But in that tiny moment, Trump was Trump. You know, like I say, the first rule of Trump is that Trump will always Trump. And Trump trumped in that moment. Yeah. The other thing I would uh, mention is the, the back and forth he had with Peter Alexander from NBC. On the one hand, we've grown so accustomed to these kind of testy back and forths with reporters. This has been a, a hallmark, for better or for worse, of the Trump presidency. But I think the intensity of that back and forth and the stakes 
surrounding not only that back and forth, but like the moment in general that we're all living through. I think up until that point with these briefings, somebody might have been able to suggest, you know, he's 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 try he's trying to uh, strike the right tone with such a high stake situation, such a complicated, ongoing life or death scenario, one of the hardest things for him as president, for any president ever to have to deal with. And yet here we are having a spat with a reporter. It's kind of usual slap fight. Right. It was a stark reminder that even with the gravity of the situation, even if he is able to muster some words of comfort, even if he's able to sort of channel uh, a unifying national leader at this perilous moment, he still eventually is going to be himself and uh, do his shtick, which includes uh, pitting himself against the press. Well, and that that leads into another question I want to ask you, Michael, which is, you know, amid all this from from kind of a a personal ratings perspective, this moment seems to be working for Trump. He's getting better marks on handling coronavirus in some recent polling uh, than than for just about anything else during his presidency. His approval ratings are ticking up a little bit. I think it's going to take some time to see if this is an ethereal moment that is is erased sooner or later uh, because we've certainly seen that any number of times during this presidency, right? Where it seems like those, his, his approval ratings or what have you have kind of been suddenly on the upswing and then it, it, it never really materializes. But so what, what, a, what, a, something about this seems to be working for him. Makes me think of a, uh, of a, of a piece I wrote scotch at this point, several years back. I think the headline was Trump with the sound off and it was about, his understanding before he was president and certainly as, as a candidate and as president of the importance of just imagery. <laughs> Roger Stone, of all people, told me for that story that Trump has always understood that how you look is more important than what you say on television. Hmm. That, is, that is just a truth of TV. And so something Trump does, I recall talking to Chuck Todd from NBC about this, he would ask after interviews with Chuck to turn the camera around and let him watch the tape, but on mute. That's what he was most interested in. Huh. How do I look? What is my what is my uh, posture? Uh, how am I coming across, regardless of the words coming out of my mouth? And so I think what he what he is trying to do here, and what I'm what I'm I'm watching is the image he's presenting to the millions of people across the country who are concerned, worried, anxious, justifiably, who are looking to him, and perhaps the sound is off, perhaps the, perhaps the sound is down, maybe they're making dinner, but he is there, center stage, in the briefing room, surrounded by uh, stern, sober professionals, and he looks like he's on it. He looks like he's in charge, regardless of what he says, regardless of the fights he has with reporters later in the show, regardless of anything, he is there. He has created that a new piece of imagery at this moment in time that at least for now, if we, if we believe those polls is benefiting him 
is making his approval ratings tick up a little bit, is making the American public say Trump's in charge because he does on that screen, on that stage, in that room, look like he is in fact in charge and doing things to address the situation. Hmm. I'm I'm very curious to see if it continues. I'm curious to see if he can, to what extent he he's able to control himself, and and you know whether or not this moment is is a real thing or just one of those bumps that that kind of passes in the night. And sure, I mean, and look, this is a this is as tough a nut to crack as he's ever had to Absolutely. try, right? Like, I mean, you know, you you can use all of your tools, you can empty your bag of tricks, and he's. Uh, He's, he's good at this. He is good at this. But there's only so long that you can control a narrative or try to project an image if, uh, if the reality on the ground gets worse and worse. And, and honestly, who knows? I hope this isn't true. But it, se- it seems like this is going to get worse before it gets better. More people are going to be sick before more people start getting better. This is going to last for a long time. So how long can he project that image and have this show uh, be successful, quote unquote, whatever that means, um, when the news, the reality keeps getting worse? I mean, I don't know that I don't know that anybody knows knows the answer to that, but uh, for sure he's going to keep he's going to keep trying, and he's going to he's going to keep going to that bag of tricks, and he's going to keep uh, he's going to keep being himself. Yeah, it's a big question, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us to talk through it. Thanks so much, Scott. Okay, that is our show. Our producer is Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament, and our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the Nerdcast. We'll talk to you again next week. In the meantime, thanks for listening.